You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Podcast. We have a very special guest today, so I'm not going to rant for long. I just wanted to let folks know, folks at the... University of North Carolina, that we are paying attention to what Psalm 100 is doing. Now, University of North Carolina, of course, is a big state school. Psalm 100 is an a cappella Christian singing group that takes monies from the university, monies collected from all the students, not just the batshit crazy evangelical douchebag hypocrite students. And they had a little vote. There was apparently an openly gay member of this a cappella group, and they voted to kick him out. Uh, they can't by university regulations, kicking him out for being gay. So they kicked him out for what he believes about being gay, namely that uh, his being gay doesn't cause Jesus to lose sleep, throw up, piss blood, or rain down destruction. Anyway, Psalm 100, I tossed him up on my blog uh, last week, uh, directed people to their Facebook page. They have one, which when it started filling up with comments from decent Christians, not just angry atheists and cocksuckers, but decent Christians, non-nalts. Of course, nalt stands for not all like that Christians, non-nalts, the kind of Christians who are willing to get up in the faces of hater Christians, not just whisper in the ears of angry uh, queers and other people who are victimized by hater Christians, that we're not all like that, but actually take the fight to the haters. When they started to hear from them on their Facebook page, they yanked it because they are, in addition to being hypocrites, Cowards, And I say they're hypocrites because they said when the student newspaper at the University of North Carolina, the Tar Heel, wrote about the scandal, they said, the spokesperson for Psalm 100, it's really easy in this situation for the focus to be on this one thing, the homosexuality, but it wasn't about that, said Blake Templeton, general director for the group. It was really about a disagreement with something that was clearly written in scripture, in the Bible, and we just have to base our decisions as an a cappella singing group, constitutionally on the Bible. And if you go to Psalm 100's website, which is singpsalm.com, S-I-N-G-P-S-A-L-M.com, you'll note that this group is at least half women. And if you go to the Bible and they sing in churches, if you go to the Bible, it's very clear that women are supposed to keep their fucking traps shut in church. So constitutionally, if you're going to follow the Bible, uh, you have to kick these bitches out or don't let them sing in goddamn church and certainly don't let them vote on uh, male members and whether or not they can stay in your little fucking uh, circle jerk singing group or what those male members can do with their male members. Anyway, their Facebook page is gone, but you can go to their website, singsalm.com, and there's a contact page there at their website. You can let them know. Please, non-nalts to the front of the line, let them know what you think about their hatred and their bigotry and their anti-biblical hypocrisy for which they will all roast on spits in hell right next to the faggots. Your calls and our very special guest after this. This episode is brought to you by adamandeve.com where you can find over 18,000 adult entertainment products for every lifestyle. To receive 50% off most any item, plus three adult DVDs, plus an extra gift, plus free shipping, visit adamandeve.com and enter SAVAGE at checkout. We're delighted to have back here at the podcast, joining us in studio once again, 
Very popular guest, Anna Kaminsky, Medical Director, Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest, PPGNW.org. You were on the show more than a year ago. That's hard to imagine. A whole year. A whole year. Answering questions uh, from Savage Love cast listeners about their uh, disease worries primarily. We have a whole list of calls for you that we've been saving all year long from people who have concerns uh, that we felt you were the better uh, person to field their questions than I. So thank you so much for coming back. You bet. But before we get to a call, the last year, the attacks on Planned Parenthood politically have been so appalling – how does it feel inside the organization? Do you guys just feel under siege or is this putting wind in your sails? People are having to take sides. I know that I've been, you know, ordering my listeners and readers all year long to fucking give money to Planned Parenthood uh, and to demonstrate their support. Even if it's a symbolic gesture, even if it says five or ten bucks uh, to help and to demonstrate to the dickbags in Washington that Americans support you guys. And how's it going? How is it from inside the building? Your message has helped. We, um, we have wind in our sails. What really became apparent when Congress was trying to look at ways to restrict funding that would make a big impact, not just on us, but of course the patients that want to see us, the people that need us, the people that come every day saying, I don't want to be pregnant or I don't want an STI or I want to have sex that feels okay, tell me what to do. Those people said to their Congress the representatives, their mm. Congress critters. Yeah. Okay. That um, that Planned Parenthood was a part of their lives, and they did not understand any of the rationale about why there should be funding restrictions. What's also really important to know is that they stepped up to the plate, not with just text messages, twitters, emails, but also with funding. We know that over 60% of Americans think Planned Parenthood should continue to get funding because we are a public health institution, and we help them make sense of their lives and to have healthy reproductive lives. So it was very, very, very encouraging to have that message. Um, It didn't play well for those that were trying to restrict funding, and you'll notice that that's kind of low-key, right? It died down. It has died down. And you had these douchebags in Congress, all with R's after their names, frankly, uh, you know, claiming that nine out of uh, ten services that Planned Parenthood provides are abortion, and de- you know, trying to defund Planned Parenthood uh, because of abortion. Right. And when then when you dug into the numbers, if you defunded Planned Parenthood, there were going to be more unplanned pregnancies and consequently more abortions. And what abortions are? What what percentage of the services Planned Parenthood provides about are abortions? Th- about three percent. Sometimes up to ten percent. Some of our affiliates, but. And I'm saying our nationally. Mm-hmm. But it is a small part of the number of people that come to see us. A small our, and legitimate part yeah. of the services Planned Parenthood provide. I don't think, you know, when we say it's 3 to 10% of the services, we're not trying to minimize uh, abortion care services because in addition to being a fundamental constitutional right, it is an important health care service that must be available to women. Yeah. And it's nothing we're embarrassed about supporting. I, I get grief all the time. People call me, you know, people send me letters, and I have an unplanned pregnancy. I don't know what to do. And I'll mention abortion, and everybody freaks out. Like, that's some sort of fucking taboo, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, and I don't know if we talked about it last night, but – and last time. We didn't see each other last night, but last time. <laughs> that's how you get on the podcast. It's a very I special know. guest. you got to spend the night in my house. <laughs> last year. That was the right way to, way to put it. Um, but in a lifetime, about almost uh, about two out of five women will have an abortion. So it's actually the most commonly performed procedure on women in the United States of America, except for 
getting your cataract surgery. So if you're a woman, you're more likely to have cataract surgery than abortion, but you're more likely to have an abortion than any other surgery or procedure in your whole lifetime. And it cuts across all racial and demographic and religious oh. lines. People oh, yeah. who are – it's not just like liberal feminist lesbian 12-year-olds who are out there getting abortions. It's women no. from all walks of life. And, you know, it's your sister. It's your mom. At this point, it's your grandmother who may have access to legal abortion at some point. It's your aunts, people you know and work with. So people who are casually – anti-abortion because they don't think they know anyone who's ever had to have an abortion are full of shit. They have not they have not seen the people in their lives who have. Or Every thought about it for two fucking seconds. Right. So how can listeners, even before we get to calls, how can listeners who want to demonstrate their support for Planned Parenthood do it? Our website, ppgnw.org. We have a lot of opportunities to write people that matter. I hope they matter to make differences in how funding works. Speak out when somebody says something like, oh, 90% of what you do is abortions. Tell them the truth. Get some facts. PPFA also has a website, ppfa.org. Planned Parenthood Federation of America. That's right. And, and don't let people tell you, tell you the, the lies that you're hearing. And Ask. It's, a, it's crucially important also for people to go to their state Planned Parenthood websites. Uh, you know, the governor of – Mitch Daniels in Indiana attempted to defund illegally the Planned Parenthood uh, Federation of, Indi- of Indiana. Uh, so wherever you are, wherever you're listening, Google Planned Parenthood and the name of your state. Find your state org and go to their website uh, and communicate with your state legislators and your governors too, not just your national representatives. Don't tell doctors and healthcare providers what to do medically. Exactly. That's what's going on. And when you're talking to Republicans, they're always claiming they want to shrink the size of government. But the point of small government, if you're a Republican, isn't that you want government to be so small you can stuff it up some woman's vagina. It's her vagina. Leave her alone. Keep the government out of it. Oh, I I almost said that myself. (laughs) Hey, Dan. I have a bit of an important question regarding uh, the HPV virus in men particularly. Uh, A couple weeks ago two or three of uh, my recent girlfriend found out that she has HPV causing severe abnormal cell growth in or around her, her cervix. And in about a week, she's going in to get a laser procedure to the abnormal tissue. And what I'm curious about is how that HPV uh, infection, the high-risk HPV, is tied to oral and head and throat cancers in men. Uh, the information online is drastically inconclusive. There's a huge dearth of information and a lot of misinformation about the subject. I have found out that HPV-16 is significantly tied to oral cancers, and presumably, since we're in a sexual relationship, I have contracted some form of HPV, and my question is regarding how much of a risk I really have for something like throat cancer, what sort of preventative uh, tactics can I take to make sure it doesn't develop into throat cancer? What kind of symptoms are there? Does Gardasil prevent the development of throat cancer in men? What, what sort of real statistics are there on this subject? And if, for whatever reason, I already have the HPV infection in my throat, which is not entirely impossible, will Gardasil prevent development of that into cancer? Um, what, what can be done in this sort of situation? Just a quick refresher. Gardasil, the HPV vaccine, 
prevents uh, cervical cancers in women. It's proven to be very effective against certain strains of HPV that cause cervical cancer. And it's recommended that we give it to all girls. That's right. And there's debate, though, about giving it to boys. Um, let me say that there's two different HPV vaccines. One is called Gardasil. One is Cervarix, kind of nifty names. Gardasil is um, going to decrease your risk of getting four of the viruses, 16, 18, 6, and 11. Researchers like to come up with numbers. <laughs> Cervarix is against 16 and 18 only. 16 and 18 are the two that cause over 70% of cervical cancer risk. Um, it is no longer restricted. In fact, we are recommending that men go ahead and get Gardasil. Now, if you want me to, I can get pretty researchy here. Go for it. All right. The data from 2000 to 2011 has changed so phenomenally that I was really excited this caller brought up some of these issues because we know a lot more now than we did two years ago. The general plan is to try and make sure that we get all girls. If we get what's called herd immunity, all the girls between ages – 9 and 26 girls and women get immunized. And if we have over 80%, we won't have to immunize men because the reservoir of that virus is predominantly in women. If we get to all the women and girls, we don't have a need to decrease the ones that spread it. But this is America. Right. And Canada got the French and Australia got the convicts and we got the Puritans. And are we going to get 80% of the girls when you have the religious right out there Telling their par telling parents not to vaccinate their daughters because if their daughters have premarital sex and get HPV, they deserve to die. What a lovely group of people. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they hate this vaccine because they right. believe that death should be a consequence of premarital sex or sex, period. Right. So there are people that think about how to sneak certain things into populations. Um, ACIP, this group that says this is how you do vaccines, it's through the CDC, Center for Disease Control. It's now recommended starting ages 9 to 11. I think that the initial resistance is going to go down just because it becomes more normative in a physician's practice or your provider's practice. It sort of just gets swept into all the other immunizations you get. And boy, there's a lot of them. You have kids. You know that. Mm -hmm. um, as I think that we will start to see more and more of the girls getting this vaccine, in some areas we, we're probably going to get close to 80 percent, but okay, not but all. But girls get the virus from somewhere, and most girls are straight girls, they're presumably getting it from guys who have the virus That's who are right. not symptomatic. Usually there aren't symptoms in a guy that are, that are apparent. So why not vaccinate all boys? I had That's my son where we vaccinated are. for uh, – I, I had my son take the Gardasil vaccine. We were giving it to him and, you know, consideration for the women that he may one day be sexually active with. Well, that's we where we're going. we don't want him to be a spreader. That's right. A spreader. Hmm. Okay. We yeah. want him to – Be at risk for causing that disease. And that does disease. the vaccine you – know, there's some talk now about how HPV may be causing oral cancers and in gay men it causes anal cancer. Shouldn't we just be vaccinating everybody, boys and girls, uh, against HPV to protect against all these potential? Absolutely, and that's what the CDC guidelines now are saying. It, it, it is not, quote, FDA approved, which means that it has to go through a study process to say, yes, it is significantly making a difference in outcomes. Mm -hmm. But everybody is saying 
any male under 26, just get the vaccine. Well, my boyfriend's, uh, you know, muscle relaxants aren't FDA approved for That's me right. when I watch Project Runway. But sometimes I, uh, I off-label them for Project Runway. Oh, asthma medicines aren't even FDA approved for some of the uses we recommend it for. But we have studies that say this makes a difference. So we have studies that are saying that Gardasil is making a difference in terms of reducing the risk of acquiring both visible warts as well as cancers. In fact, thank you very much for my segue. <laughs> About 90 percent. You wanted to talk about Project Runway too? No, that oh, was no? my daughter might, but <laughs> about 90 percent of individuals that have throat cancer have HPV 16. So you are looking at a group that is getting HPV from oral sex, or I love it. There was a study that talked about open mouth kissing, and my question was, is there other kind of kissing? But anyway, yeah, really, open mouth kissing. I think that's what we used to call French kissing. Is that right? So, ninety percent. There are other kinds of kisses. I remember kissing my grandmother once, and it was definitely a closed mouth kiss. Jewish family? No. Catholics. Okay. I, I don't know about you people. What you got up to? Catholics. We don't. We don't uh, tongue grandma. No. At the home. So about ninety percent of the oral cancers now are associated with HPV sixteen. It's still a really rare cancer. So your caller is asking, what can I do to prevent throat cancer? Well, I actually can help you prevent getting HPV-16. But if you have it already, we're going to keep our fingers crossed you clear. And it turns out that men, there was a study called the HIM study, H-I-M, not H-Y-M-N, hmm. HPV in male study. And what they wanted to know is what's the natural history? If a man gets HPV-16, 18, or a bunch of the other ones, does it stay in the skin? And if it does, how long? Well, it turns out the older you are, the faster you clear it, which means you get it, but six months, 12 months later, it's gone. The younger you are, the longer it takes to clear it, but you do clear it. Now, we know that in girls and women as well. It just takes longer. So your caller is most likely going to clear the HPV-16 at some point. There's no guarantees, and there's nothing that will prevent throat cancer except for preventing HPV 16 and maybe But not 18. everybody who's exposed to HPV or acquires HPV is going to get Absolutely not. cervical cancer, throat cancer. And the way it's talked about off in the media, you just think that, oh, my God, I've been exposed to HPV. Right. I am going to die of cancer. That's, that's right. That's not true. No, not at all. It's, it's very, very rare. It's a small increased risk. And the benefits of an active sex life are worth shouldering that small increased risk. That is my belief. Mine, too. Hi, Dan. This is Sarah from New York. I'm a 24-year-old heterosexual woman, and I have a question for you. Um, I'm seeing this new guy. Everything's great. He's fantastic. Um, but, of course, there's a but. By, like, the second time we were hooking up, he still hadn't gone down on me. And I was giving him fantastic head, blowing his mind every time. And I was just like, what's going on? What gives? And he didn't strike me as the type to be grossed out or turned off by giving a girl head, and so I was just really taken aback that he still hadn't even done that. And he admitted to me um, that he had given another girl HSV-1 herpes of the genitals from his oral herpes. Now, I know this is possible, and I just want to know what my risk is. I feel so stupid because in weighing the costs and benefits, the 
giving up of the possible benefits of him going down on me is starting to weigh really heavily on my decision-making. But, of course, having genital herpes would be horrible, and I don't want to deal with that either. What do I do? First thing I want to tackle is this idea that, quote, getting genital herpes would be horrible. In most instances, most cases, overwhelming majority, it ain't horrible. Is it? I think it has so much social baggage that goes along with it. The most important thing to know for a woman about HSV in general is that if you have HSV and you are pregnant and you are close to your time of delivery, you it depends. The research changes all the time. You will probably be on medications to suppress HSV because you don't want to give it to your infant at birth. Um, other than that, you're going to live if you have herpes. You're going to survive. I understand that those conversations are very challenging, both emotionally. You want to... And there's a social stigma yeah. and there's an outsized fear of what herpes will mean in your life if you acquire it. But it's not this, you know, it's not the bubonic fucking plague. People talk about it like your sex life is over and your genitals are this open running sore for the rest of your life. And it's just not true. And most people, most people who have, who are carriers, herpes have, are asymptomatic. Most people don't know they have herpes. Maybe they had one outbreak, one sore that they didn't even notice. And they've never had another outbreak. Um, you know, as sexually transmitted infections go, uh, the, the, you know, the way people talk about herpes and feel about herpes is so much uh, out of proportion for what herpes actually does and how it actually impacts people's lives. Well, I, I, I really agree. I think it's important to know where you can reduce your risks so that you don't have a disorder or disease. For women, it's important because we don't want them to have to deal with this if they're going to be having kids in the future. But it should not stop you from being a normal, healthy, sexually active adult. Okay, now, in this case, this guy yeah. did the right thing. He obviously is a carrier for HSV. Like um, most adults probably are orally. And he, uh, you know, he says that he, uh, you know, transmitted or, you know, oral genital to a previous girlfriend, which itself is unprovable because that girl may have been exposed in a previous relationship and just the time, you know, her first outbreak didn't arrive until after that incident. There's really no way of telling for certain that it was that oral encounter that gave her his previous girlfriend. But he did the right thing. He disclosed. Yeah. And now you have to decide, caller, what risks you're willing to assume uh, for the pleasures of uh, Conalingus right. at the end of this guy's tongue. And, and what's your advice for her? Well, she thinks about this? 50 to 80 percent of adults have HSV-1 at any given time. 20% of adults has, have HSV-2, which is the more HSV genital one. HSV-1 is what one. we're usually calling oral herpes, right. although you can get it on your genitals. And 2 is genital herpes, although you can get it in your mouth. That's right. So it's this kind of distinction without a difference. It is. If she really wants to be as safe as possible, ask her partner to take suppressive doses of anti-HSV medications. Val valcyclovir, acyclovir, famcyclovir. That will reduce his risk of... Transmission. So if she want, if she's really concerned about it, that would be kind of the gold standard for her. You know, short of that, I think she also needs to really understand that a, sh it's it. She probably has been infected before. If she got a blood test, chances are about fifty percent that she has previously had some infection. 
Um, a primary episode is very unpleasant. So although you said that, you know, it might have been previously present in somebody, a primary episode of a new HSV is is a whole different experience that you don't really want to have. Um, we're talking about walking around like a cowgirl who's been on the saddle too long <laughs> and really sometimes like pain meds and not going to work, but that that's pretty uncommon. Um, so her absolutely best way of reducing her risk is to talk to this guy about going on suppression. Somebody that has some um, you know, those canker sores, fever blisters, all that kind of stuff. More than three or four times a year, it's perfectly reasonable, and any provider would say, yeah, sure, let's go on suppression. Um, there's even some data that says that if he took a big, well, I wouldn't say big, but anyway, a treatment dose for, say, two or three days before having oral sex, that that would also decrease her transmission. A lot of different ways you can possibly look at that. Um, but I think the most important thing that you've said is, we can reduce risk, probably can't eliminate it, and if you do get this, you can actually have a normal, healthy sex life. If she were to get it, she can take the suppressive meds, right? And she can get them at Planned Parenthood. She sure can. Looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Well, here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com for a limited time only. You'll get 50% off just about any item. And that's not all. There's more. You'll also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free extra gift plus free shipping on your entire order. Check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout. Hi, Dan. This is Benjamin from Michigan. I'm calling because I have a bet going with a friend. The steaks are a strawberry rhubarb pie. She thinks that there is sperm in pre and I say that there is not. She says that Planned Parenthood says that there is, can be thousands, and I uh, question that in general and say that people say that there's a danger of pre A, because you can get STIs from it, and B, because it would be a bad sex ed method to teach people that they could cannot get pregnant from that, and then they would, you know, get in the movement and the moment and then not later put a condom on. So, of course, they won't really teach that there can be sperm in it and that the only way that there could be sperm is if there is an ejaculation and then the person has sex again without peeing in between. Is this right or am I totally off and I'm going to have to make a strawberry rhubarb pie? Semen and pre-cum, what does Planned Parenthood say? Well, first of all, I want three strawberry rhubarb pies. They're both right, and I like them, and they can deliver it to 2001 Madison in Seattle. I like more rhubarb than strawberry. (laughs) So uh, you asked for references. There are three studies I can refer you to, a 1993, a 2003, and a 2009 I would have thought there was a lot more interest in finding this question out. I can't believe how little research has been done about this. There's also some HIV research. So here's the story. There is sperm in pre-cum. However, it tends to be non-motile. If you can't swim those sperm, you're not going to get pregnant from those sperm. However, the last study in 2009 said there seemed to be, quote, this was better than nothing, or was it a savvy risk reduction practice in 
using withdrawal. So it becomes very interesting. Withdrawal is as effective as using a condom. Really, it is. Mm -hmm. But of course, we have to talk about perfect use and typical use. In condoms, perfect use, only 2% of people will have an oops pregnancy over a year. Withdrawal, it's a 4% oops pregnancy over a year. With perfect use. Perfect use. I'm not accidentally blowing the load in there. That's correct. Typical use, what really happens, 17% with condoms, 18% with withdrawal. So it's as good as condoms. So if you want to if you want to practice that, which is why it's important to know whether there's sperm cells in precum that are motile, that are right. swimmers, and the studies generally show that there aren't. Uh, and when they do find sperm cells, they're usually you know the the precum preejaculate fluid is uh, created mostly by the Cowper's gland, not by the seminal vesicles, not by the same place that pump out your sperms, uh, sperm cells. And But you can have sort of residual sperm cells, leftover sperm cells from previous ejaculations clogging up your urethra. And those can be swept along in your stream of pre-cum. Right. The risk is probably for those that are having sex repeatedly over the course of a date night. So you have sex. You take a little break. Two hours later, he gets an erection. There's pre-cum. There's swimmers left over there. There's fresh ones, live ones. the younger you are, the bigger an issue it is for you. Could be. Could be. (laughs) That's rhubarb pie on a la mode right there, an observation like that. That wins you a scoop of ice cream. So if you're looking on the internet and you need to find this reference, here's the 1995 one by Rogau. It's it's, um, entitled, it's such an exciting title, Does Pre-Ejaculation Penile Secretion originating from Cowper's gland contains sperm. Now, if that isn't an exciting title, I don't know what is. I think Matt Damon should star in that when they adapt it for film. It's a good one. And then the other one is Better Than Nothing or Savvy Risk Reduction Practice, Jones, 2009. So you owe each other a strawberry rhubarb pie. I think you should make it a cook-off. You were both right. And you get three. I'm looking for one. Hey, Dan. Um, This is a female calling from the South, I'm bicurious. Without any introduction, I'll just go ahead and say it. I love eating my boyfriend's ass. Um, I think that it's fantastic. Um, I get kind of crazy with it. Um, it's been it, it's been escalating in its level of hardcore to the point where I think I'm almost penetrating him with my tongue. Um, just was curious, you know, what are the risks involved? Um, should we, I don't know, should we make sure that we're vaccinated or, you know, what are the precautions? Um, we've both been tested, we're both clean, you know, what are things to look out for? Any advice? You hate this question you just said. I just said that. There's no research. I, I can't kind of come down to some really good papers to tell you what you're at real risk for. I can give you a lot of theoretical risk. Well, you know, if he has butt syphilis or butt gonorrhea, That's right. you could orally acquire it. You can get gonorrhea of the throat. If he has hepatitis, for which there's a vaccine for hepatitis, I believe A and B now. A and B, yep. Uh, so you can be vaccinated for that, but you're right. not at risk for that if he doesn't have hepatitis. And if you know him well enough to, to, to know something about his health and to go and get tested, that could be a non-issue. Yeah. But you might as well get vaccinated for hep A and B. That's right. And Gardasil, back to our HPV discussion, because you can do that. You can get that throat cancer and anal cancer risk, although both are very low. 
and have to be weighed against the pleasures. Mm -hmm. And you seem to take, caller, a great deal of pleasure sticking Mm -hmm. your tongue up your boyfriend's ass. And I don't see any reason to stop so long as you're both clean. Clean. You could And by clean, I mean freshly showered. I'm not using clean as uh, a metaphor for disease-free because people can be carriers for HPV or HIV or HSV and be sparkling clean. They just happen to have a sexually transmitted infection uh, that they haven't cleared yet or will never clear. But they're clean. It drives them crazy, particularly people with HIV. When you say, I'm clean, to mean I don't have HIV. Uh, So don't don't use that expression because it drives some people crazy. Uh, but, you know, analingus, a lot of people do it, and very few people actually get sick. Very few people do. And you have to always remember that you've got to kind of balance your your own pleasure, your own worry, your own risk reduction needs. I mean, there's people that, you know, they don't want me to touch their glass before they drink out of it. Okay, that's their issue. <laughs> I washed my hands. I really do. You have to do that a lot. So one of the things is... Tackle what you can tackle with vaccinations. Know who you're with. I think that's probably one of the biggest aspects of risk reduction. Know who you're with. Don't be indiscriminately sticking your tongue up just anybody's ass on the bus. Not on the way to work in the morning. Yeah, I mean, if that's one thing, I wish everybody could take that to heart. You know, people talk about their risks when it comes to. Uh, sexual activity, and there's this generalizing of risks from, you know, the riskiest possible circumstances onto people who are, are their, their circumstances aren't risky. If you're, you know, with somebody and you're either monogamous or you're in, in, engaging in some serial monogamy where you basically have one partner at a time and you know them well enough to know something about their health or perhaps have been tested together, your risks are really low. A lot of what we talk about, we talk about sexually transmitted infections and risks. We're talking about multi-partner situations uh, that most people yeah. aren't in. Yeah, unhealthy lifestyles. You know, you, you got, looked you, right at me when you said that. Did I? Yeah. Oh, I don't know enough about you. <laughs> well, you spent the night last night. I know. Bit. And I think it's always important to know that the one of the risk factors is higher use of drugs and alcohol. That tends to reduce your kind of critical thought processes and like, should I be licking this guy's ass or not? And once you have enough alcohol or drugs on board, you might very well not be going through a there's, thought process that's good for you. There's no ass you won't lick. Uh, me personally? I mean, when you're drunk okay. enough. <laughs> They're just, I think that I mean, might be true. Enough, you could fall face forward, tongue out into the ass of a stranger. That's just right. Just walking down the street. And don't forget, you can use condoms and dental dams. You can continue to use barriers to reduce both pleasure and risk. Hi, Dan. I need to talk to you about yeast. Um, the last couple of ladies that I've been with have reported to me after the fact that they've contracted yeast infections and they think that it's from me after having nights of sex. And I don't know why. I've read about it on the internet. I don't use condoms that have a spermicidal lube. I use latex condoms. Um, and I just don't know what I can be doing that's causing this or how I can prevent it. Like I said, I read on the internet some things about it and it didn't offer me anything really uh, concrete about something I could change or do to myself that will stop these ladies from getting yeast infections. I like having sex with them and I don't want to cause them pain or have them turn away from me because of what I bring to the table. 
I've actually gotten some letters about this recently where someone is sort of a yeast infection patient zero where they say, I've slept with a couple of people or the women I keep sleeping with keep telling me that, you know, when only with me did they get a yeast infection after sex. Are some guys just walking Wonder Bread factories? What the fuck? Well, um, there is potentially slightly increased risk or of, of getting a yeast infection if men are uncircumcised. But the real issue is yeast care about the pH of the vagina. Change the pH of the vagina, you can get yeast. Having a lot of sex, a lot of sperm, I mean that semen in the vagina. PhD stands for philosophy of the vagina. Right, PhD. It's a good question. pH is actually the acid balance of the vagina. Which is acid why base. folks who write in asking about introducing food stuffs into the vagina for oral play or to, you know, right. eat chocolate or ice cream out of the vagina or strawberries or bananas. That's kind of going to fuck up your pH balance. It sure can and I mean, it sure do will. It. Yeah. You can do it. You can take that, you know, any pleasure, you know, skiing, some people are going to die. If, you know, putting a banana in your vagina and having it chewed out of something you've always wanted to do and you're willing to. Get yeast infections. Get yeast infections. And how do you cure a yeast infection? What do you do? Well, there's a lot of um, – I hate to call them folk remedies. There's a lot of kind of on-the-street stuff that people use. You know, they kind of run their own course, but that can be a painful, itchy, unpleasant, smelly, scratchy experience. And there are plenty of <laughs> – The bananas kind of less and less <laughs> worth it all the time. <laughs> There really is nothing medical science can do for yeast infections. Oh, sure there is. So there's uh, antifungal medications that, you know, your guarantee a safe way has it. Um, there's also a pill that you can take. So easy, easy to treat. So if you're feeling itchy and uncomfortable, go to any place that has mm, – if they have condoms, they're going to have an antifungal medication. So this guy, could he be causing yeast infections girl to girl to girl? He could, but if it's not a catching thing or, or they're having a lot of sex or he mentioned condoms. Some women are very sensitive to nanoxanol 9. Nanoxanol 9 is a detergent. It is a detergent. It cuts the sperm tail is what it does. And people now don't believe that you should include that in, in, in condoms. Right. Uh, it used to be particularly for HIV, people felt that nanoxanol 9 was important, that you had to have a lube, you had to have it at pre-lubricated condoms. And mm-hmm. what they found was as a detergent, it was an irritant and it was actually facilitating HIV transmission. Right, because it, it breaks down your natural mucus barrier in whatever body part we're talking about so and it's easier to get made. there. And now if you see nanoxanol 9 as an ingredient in the, a pre-lubricated condom or a bucket of lube by someone's bed, you shouldn't use that. You should toss that. Toss also, so, particularly if it also contributes to yeast infections. I hadn't heard that. Well, um, it, it's just because it's a detergent once you start changing the pH of the vagina. I mean, anoxanol 9 has a really good role in the people that are mostly using condoms, which is actually a very low HIV risk group. It's just this one little added benefit. Um, a lot of the lubes should be pH balanced to be acceptable to mucous membranes. Some of them aren't. Some of them have sugar substitutes in it. Ooh, those yeast love some sugar substitute. If you ever taste any of these lubes, they have kind of a sweet touch to them. Um, grapefruit extract or a grapefruit seed extract is used in a lot of the lubes as a antibacterial. That's actually probably okay. So sometimes you just have to figure out what the one component was. And is there could, a way for a woman to test her pH balance? To Is that something that a woman can regulate? 
Well, we'll keep an eye on somehow? Or is well, it just so like, I'm itching, I must, pH balance must be fucked up? So for a while, a lot of people were advocating douching or boric acid capsules. We now know that there's more disadvantages to douching with, say, a dilute vinegar solution or using boric acid capsules. Um, people with diabetes, they have more sugar in their bodies, can be more prone to it. Mostly your vagina is a great self-cleaning tool. Leave it alone. That mucus of secretions, wash stuff away. If you think you have a yeast infection, go ahead and try over the counter. If you're getting repeated ones, I kind of want to see you and make sure it can be an indicator of other things like diabetes or HIV. As a matter of fact, if there's a lot more yeast going on. Um, And then with this one guy, two people does not convince me Mm-hmm. I think he needs more data. That I don't, could be a coincidence. Could be a coincidence. Could have been that they had a lot of vigorous sex, as they call it, whatever that might be. And her tissues got abraded. Yeast love to be there. Hey, Dan. Uh, I'm a 30-year-old straight male that just entered into a monogamous long-term relationship that has yet to be consummated. Uh, it's a fairly clinical question, so I'll try to keep it brief. Uh once we decided that we were exclusive and wanted to have a sex life together, we uh, went and got tested at our local county health clinic, uh, and uh, she had a negative test. I came back positive for chlamydia. Uh, I went and had the appropriate antibiotic treatment, was asymptomatic, and haven't shown any resistance to antibiotics in the past. Um, since then, she has talked to her gynecologist and decided that an IUD would be her preferred choice of birth control and sort of had the life scared into her about uh, the possibility of infertility coming from a chlamydia infection with an IUD. Uh, so she is justifiably uh, nervous and wanted me to get retested after antibiotics had run the course. Uh, unfortunately, our county health clinic won't uh, retest anyone that's been treated for three months. And uh, any other option with a nonprofit would be, you know, about 10 times as much. So I've done some research on it, and on the rare chance that I am resistant to antibiotics and still test positive for chlamydia, uh, it seems like it's a long road to get from there to PID to infertility. Um, I have no doubt that she's emotionally, physically, mentally ready for our sex life to begin, but... uh, we're sort of in the past here as far as how to move forward. And I, of course, don't want uh, any hesitation on her part uh, when it comes to uncertainty about infertility. I'm calling bullshit on this guy. How much is a chlamydia test at a Planned Parenthood office? Oh, boy. You know, they shield me from the money parts. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be so prohibitively expensive that you're willing to sacrifice your sex life. Absolutely not. I think even if it's 10 times as much as, you know, X, whatever the test costs through your health clinic, isn't it worth it? Isn't she worth it? Scrape the fucking money together. I th- Collect some cans by the side of the road. Get a job at McDonald's for a month. Like, whatever. I know. We're under $100 for sure. But um, he- here's the issue. There is so little chlamydia resistance right now. That if he took seven days of doxycycline, which is probably what he's given, or one gram of azithromycin once, which is the alternative, the chances of him having chlamydia are 
negligible. You know, us doctors, we hate to say zero because then when we're wrong, we get, you know, we feel terrible. Right. And the person who walks it, you know, the risk of HIV transmission under the circumstances is vanishingly low. And you give that advice out and then you meet the person who took that risk and actually got HIV. Right. And it was 100% for them. And so well, you feel terrible, you know, ruling anything out. Well, as I sometimes say to my patients every day that you leave your home, you don't say, gosh, today is probably the day I'll have a car accident. It's unlikely you'll have a car accident. It's unlikely that he's going to have resistance to chlamydia. But it but it's possible. So the most important thing to know is you don't do a test for the first three months because the test is based on some protein isolates, and they can stay for a long time. So it'd be inaccurate. It would tell him, like six weeks later, it would tell him, you still have chlamydia, but it's actually just looking at proteins that are still there. So don't bother to get a test for the first three months. He could use a condom if they really want to be careful um, but the most important thing I'm going to say right this second is that the studies have shown over the last decade with both the new IUD, the Mirena, and the old, older, uh, more long-term used IUD, the Paragard, the Copper, is that infertility risk did not increase. They just didn't. The, the chance of getting infection is still very low. The chance of infection in the first three months is at the highest. If you have symptoms, you go in, you get treated. You don't need to have the IUD pulled. You get treated. And what we're seeing from decades with the Paragard and about 15, 20 years now with the Mirena is there are not increased infertility risks, even if you got a chlamydia infection. We know that it can get worse, and so we want to reduce your risk of it getting worse, but the chances are still going to be small, negligible, almost zero of having any fertility issues at all. Get your IUD, use a condom if it makes you sleep better at night and worry less, and go ahead and get tested again in three months. To reassure your girlfriend. Yeah. And however much it costs, ain't she worth it. Ain't she worth it. Thank you so much, Anna. Anna Kaminsky, Medical Director, Planned Parenthood of the Great Northwest. Any final thoughts for the Savage Lovecast listeners out there about sexual health? Know who you're with. Minimize drugs and alcohol because it impairs your ability to think straight and reduce your risk of pregnancy and infections. Condoms and dental dams are always an option. Dental dams. There must be crates of those somewhere. I know. There must be crates. Every time I think of dental dams, I see that scene in Indiana Jones (laughs) where they're like moving the Ark of the Covenant into some enormous government warehouse. It's just this endless, endless, endless space full of crates. Okay, I don't think the non used those no. ever, but we made a lot of them, and they're sitting no. somewhere in crates next to the uh, "Say It Lesbians Get AIDS" T-shirts that were popular. That's in right. Act up circles in the eighties. The non lubricated, non non uh, latex condoms. Cut them with a scissor down the middle. You got yourself a barrier. Good luck, everybody. Thank you again, Anna. And please come Thanks. back. Come back sooner this time. I will. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to call with a comment or question for a future show, ppgnw.org is the website for Planned Parenthood, the Great Northwest. If you'd like to find some information, contact a legislator, find other organizations, other state organizations, or make a donation, even a symbolic one of five or ten bucks, goes a long way to proving to those idiots in Washington, D.C., that Americans are on Planned Parenthood's side. 206-201-2720. That's the number. Give us a call. Me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. We back at you next week. Another installment of the Savage Podcast. 
Thanks for downloading.